We've taken eight weeks to walk through the book of Mark. It is a short, fast-paced, action-packed account of Jesus' life and ministry. Our mission statement as a church is disciples who make disciples to impact the city of St. Pete for Jesus. And so at some level, it's going to require explaining what the Bible teaches and even walking others through books of the Bible. If we're going to be disciples, followers of Christ, who are making disciples, it's going to require some things of us, some commitment, some intentionality. It's going to require all of us being stretched. But my goal has been to equip you, to give you what you need to walk others through the Gospel of Mark. Many people, as I said earlier, have never read a book of, uh, of the Bible on their own. Many people have never even known where to start in this, in this book. It's got the weird sounding pages and the gold edge. And what do I do? Where do I go? We have the privilege, again, of taking people by the hand and leading them to Christ in the Scriptures. But how do you do that? Where do you start? Is it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? We'll pick one of those Gospels. I would encourage you, since we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, to take the Gospel of Mark and, and use this as an opportunity to now come alongside someone else. We've done eight stories. Eight stories that I pray you treasure Eight stories that I pray you have benefited from and have grown in your appreciation and love for Jesus because of. I don't want the Bible to feel like a foreign land to you. It doesn't have to. It does require all of us spending more time in the Scriptures, becoming more familiar, becoming more confident with with the Scriptures so that we can take others, like I said, by the hand and lead them to Christ, to see Him for who He is in Scripture. So that's the hope. I love surprise endings. The best books or movies are the ones you think you know will end a a certain way, and then something is revealed, something happens that leaves everyone surprised. And while you're still kind of in shock and awe, the credits start to roll, and you just kind of sit there shaking your head. It kind of takes a few minutes to process what just happened. Those are the best endings. Today, in Mark 15 and 16, we have two surprise endings. These are surprise conclusions, we could say, that frame our entire passage. Now, there's a lot of shock and awe here. The first surprise conclusion is something Mark wants his readers to be absolutely 100% sure of. Jesus is dead. The second surprise conclusion is delivered by a startling messenger three days after Jesus' death and leaves the disciples who hear this message absolutely speechless and trembling. Jesus is alive. So two startling conclusions, two surprise conclusions. Jesus is dead. Jesus is alive. So surprise conclusion number one, be sure of this. Jesus is dead. Let's read about it in Mark 15, starting in verse 42. It was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of uh, Hoses, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome 
bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So the first conclusion we can arrive at here from this text is that Jesus is dead. It was Friday, late afternoon, and as evening approaches, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who's actually said to be a prominent member of the council, and who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, Joseph went boldly and asked Pilate, who was the governor of that region, and who had given the okay to crucify Jesus, he went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now, Joseph is a member of the council, or the Sanhedrin. You remember the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin had, had actually decided that Jesus was worthy of death. They needed a certain number to vote. There were 70 that made up the Sanhedrin. This is the group, this is the council. Many believe Joseph was a part of. Now, he wouldn't have given his vote because we find out in Matthew 27 that it tells us that he was actually a disciple of Jesus. And in John 19, it it tells us that he was a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So Joseph was leaning into Christ. He was a follower of Jesus, and yet he was part of this council. So in this real twist of irony, a member of the council that just condemned Jesus to death is now making an appeal for Jesus' body. Joseph is risking everything by coming forward. He's prepared to face uncleanness. The Sabbath is approaching. He's prepared to face suspicion. The possible charges of, an associ- of being an associate of Jesus. Why is he doing this? Why risk anything for a crucified man? I think he had had enough of sitting in the shadows, of being a secret follower. I think Joseph was disgusted by the events and he wanted to honor Jesus even in his death. We know Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, what is he waiting for? The rule and reign of God to break in. The rule and reign of God that would upend the powers of darkness and bring freedom from their oppressors. Here here he is a secret disciple of Jesus, so he's living in expectation and anticipation of, of what God would do through Jesus, who claimed to be Messiah, the divine king, the one who would usher in God's kingdom. Now the one who claimed to be the Messiah is dead. The least Joseph could do is is honor him. And with no regard for his own reputation or life, he makes this bold request. He asks for the body of Jesus. The Jewish law, it didn't permit uh, any work on Sabbath, which meant they couldn't bury the body of Jesus late that night, which is when the Sabbath began, or the next day. So Joseph had to move fast, and he had some friends helping him. In John 19, it mentions that Nicodemus was with him, and they brought lots of spices 
and they, they honored Jesus in his death and they found a tomb to lay him in. But Joseph's request of Jesus' body, it pushes key witnesses forward in our passage that confirms really what's taken place. You see in verse 44, it says that Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead. Crucifixion was usually a drawn-out thing. As long as these executioners, these experts in crucifixion, could have let their uh, victims linger on the cross, that they wanted to draw out that, that suffering and that torture. But Jesus was already dead. Pilate was surprised, surprised to hear that he's already dead. And so he calls the one who's overseeing everything, the expert in crucifixion, the one who could confirm whether or not Jesus was actually, in fact, dead. And by the way, the centurion's life, it depended on him getting this right. When Pilate calls the centurion to confirm the death of Jesus, the centurion's life is online here. But also, by the way, Pilate is the legal authority on the matter at hand. He's the one who gave the thumbs up, gave the green light for Jesus to actually be crucified. And so his reputation and his future, his political future, depended on the centurion getting it right. They're not messing around. Pilate was surprised that Jesus had already died, but he wanted to confirm that Jesus was dead. So the centurion comes forward and he is certain. He's certain that Jesus is dead. So certain, he actually gives the body to Joseph. There are actually eight references throughout our text uh, referring to the body of Jesus. A lot of concern over his body. One thing is most definitely being emphasized in this first half of our, our text, Jesus is dead. Joseph of Arimathea, he confirms Jesus is dead. Pilate, the one who actually gave the verdict for him to be crucified, confirms that Jesus is dead. And the professional executioner confirms Jesus is dead. So much so he's willing to give the body to Joseph. And, and, and they do. They give the body to Joseph. So the surprise conclusion Number one, that's very important for us to understand is that Jesus was dead. No breath in his lungs, no heartbeat. Dead. Surprise conclusion number two, just as he told you, Jesus is alive. Three women, two Marys and a Salome, they bought spices, and they would have bought these spices before the Sabbath because they couldn't go out on Sabbath to buy them but after they witnessed Jesus die. So even their purchase of these spices to anoint Jesus' body is proof that these disciples, these followers of Jesus who witnessed his crucifixion, witnessed where they laid him in the tomb, they believed he was dead. They were not expecting resurrection. The very purchase of these spices shows us that they, they were expecting to find a corpse. They're more witnesses to the fact that Jesus died. They're wanting to honor Jesus. They're wanting to express devotion and love, even in his death. So the spices would have helped keep the stench uh, of, of uh, all the, the rotting flesh and the decomposition. It would have kept the stench down, so they would have been able to uh, anoint the body with these spices and honor Jesus in his death. The burial process actually was a two-step process. 
It's interesting. They would uh, anoint the body with spices, and they'd wrap it and then anoint it some more, and then they would leave the body to decompose for a period of time. And then when it had decomposed, they would take the body, uh, the bones apart, and they would put them in a box, or they'd put them on a shelf within the tomb in preparation for the next member of the family who would, oftentimes they would share a burial space. Just after sunrise, the first day of the week, an early Sunday morning, the women are asking about the stone. They had seen the big stone rolled in front of the opening. Most tombs had a large stone that oftentimes would have been on a track and at an angle, keeping the stench and grave robbers out. Keeping the stench in and grave robbers out. But wait, they arrive and they see for themselves the stone has actually been rolled away. And there's this young man dressed in a white robe and they come into the area of the tomb and they see this young man dressed in a white robe and they they say to themselves, oh, this is totally normal. No, they don't say that actually. They're freaked out. Who is this young dude dressed in white? They're alarmed. They're completely freaked out. Now, one of the ways that we can be certain this is a historical account and not legend is the fact that Mark's first witnesses to the resurrection are women. You see, in ancient societies, the testimony of a woman wasn't given much weight at all. Women were marginalized and still are in many societies. But this was especially true in the court of law. So it just wouldn't have... It wouldn't have been given much weight at all. But I love how this account pays no attention to cultural discrimination and prejudice. I love how the testimony of these women 2,000 years ago began what we're a part of today. So they were key witnesses to Jesus' crucifixion. They were key witnesses to his burial and to the empty tomb. And their names are mentioned here a number of times as if Mark is saying to his first century readers, hey, you can go ask them about it yourself. In verse 6, this young man in white, he says, don't be alarmed. He's risen. He's not here. Have you ever heard someone deliver such good news that it feels so just unbelievable so hard to grasp it feels like a dream you ever been in that place that's exactly where where these women were thoughts just screaming through their heads their hearts racing they're astonished the scriptures say which means they're just completely overwhelmed they're they're dumbfounded they're, they're just bewildered they're speechless they don't know what to do what to say and this young man says go who we know is an angel, he says, go tell his disciples. In other words, don't keep this to yourself. Go. Go tell the ones uh, who, who thought they knew what Jesus was going to do, but they only saw in part. Go tell them. Go tell them that he's risen, just as he said he would. And Peter. Here Peter's singled out. I love this. Peter. You know, Jesus is behind this message. The, the angel, this young angel, doesn't just come up with this on his own. He's delivering Jesus' message to these disciples and Peter. 
tell Peter when Jesus sees him, he better watch his back. That's not what the angel said. Tell him he better have some good reason why he denied Jesus. That's not what he said. No, he said, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And he singles Peter out because Peter needs reassurance that he wasn't being excluded. Jesus understood the sense of shame and despair that Peter was experiencing from just that grief. He broke down and cried. He wept after he had denied Jesus three times. So Peter is singled out. He's called out by Jesus. Go tell the disciples and Peter. That tells us something of Jesus' love and character. Just as he told you. I love those words. Just as he told you. You see, these words must have unlocked a treasure box of things that Jesus had said when he was with them. A treasure box of things that were said that had been hidden behind misconceptions. Just as he told you. Oh my, he did tell us. And, and I'm sure just event after event, story after story, prediction after prediction. And we ourselves saw over three, three or four predictions that Jesus brought to his disciples in the Gospel of Mark alone of what would happen, that he would be crucified, that he'd be handed over, that he'd be falsely accused, that he would die, but that he would raise to life. Oh yeah, just as he said. Verse 8, they are... Tr- trembling and bewildered they're in shock like the breath is just knocked right out of them i'm trying i was trying to think this week what this moment really felt like for these women so i was thinking if you take the moment you hold your baby for the first time combine that with the moment you see your bride on your wedding day you add that to the moment you hear the words i love you as you're nodding off to sleep along with that long embrace of a family member you thought would never make it through surgery. And then that, 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 that embrace of the family member you haven't seen forever. Just take all of that good stuff, all of it, and try to bottle it up. I think this is, this is where they were. It was indescribable hope. These are outrageous dreams that are coming true. Only they're even better than imagined. And and here's what the women did. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And and I love Scripture's honesty here. They, They didn't say anything to anyone. They were freaked out. They were afraid. But listen, we know they didn't say anything to anyone until they reached the disciples. We know from other accounts, other gospel accounts, after they collected themselves, they did a whole lot of talking. Their report in Luke 24 sent Peter and John running back, racing to the tomb. With John, you know, boasting that he beat Peter, but you you can read about that. But they run to the tomb. And then it just ends. It ends. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. End scene. I love it. It's so abrupt. It's so suspenseful. Now you might say, hey, Darren, there's a lot more there. What what are you doing ending it there? 
the earliest and most reliable manuscripts end Mark's gospel right here in verse 8. Now, translations have chosen to keep verses 9 uh, through 20, but have included a footnote about it. Your Bible probably has a footnote about these verses. I love the honesty of the translators. But the earliest and most reliable manuscripts end Mark's gospel here. And I I think Mark's ending in verse 8 is in keeping with how he's written throughout the gospel. It might feel abrupt. It is abrupt. It's an abrupt ending, but it's full of purpose. And it leaves us wrestling with the things that have been presented. It's as if Mark's saying, listen, there's no real end here because it's not the end. It's the beginning of something new, something so glorious, something you've been longing for and hoping for. Now, now go. Do something about it. Jesus is alive. When I say alive, I mean alive like you and me alive. Even more alive, heart beating, lungs breathing, promise-making, prophecy-fulfilling alive. So what will you do with that? What are we supposed to do with it? That leads us to our final conclusion. Surprise conclusion number three. It's, it's our response to it all. Our response to Jesus. You know, Mark begins in chapter 1, verse 1, telling us who Jesus is, and then challenges us to answer the question, for ourselves. In so many ways, Mark's been inviting us to see Jesus for ourselves through the gospel of Mark. And I love that. I love it. Have you grown in your understanding of who Jesus is and what it means for your life? Have you started to lean in as a follower of Jesus? Maybe this is brand new and you're beginning to lean in. Feels a little scary. But you're beginning to lean in towards Christ and you're asking, what is this going to require of me? What is Jesus calling me to? You're starting to see you can't just leave Jesus on the sidelines, that he's got to be central to who you are if you're going to recognize him as Messiah, as king, as the one who, claim, who he claims to be. And maybe you've been listening for weeks and now we're to the resurrection and you're like, okay, really? Are we supposed to embrace this? And the answer is Absolutely. If Christ is not raised, then all of this is for nothing. We should really be somewhere else right now. But he is. And because he's raised, it changes everything. Because he's raised, it means true life for you and I. It means that his claims are true. He's the son of God. Holy divine, holy human, come to rescue us and redeem us. And that rocks us so much so and humbles us It puts us in a place of decision-making. It it puts all of us who read these words at a a, a crossroad. You know, what are we going to do? Are we going to embrace Jesus or not? Have you understood the invitation given to follow him with this undivided devotion and to invite others to do the same? Do you see what you're invited into? Do you see the beauty and the splendor and the treasure that Jesus is? Do you see the kingdom of God and the king who is present, that Jesus is king? And that he entered, he entered his glory by dying in our place. But now he's raised to life and, and he's the first of this new creation. That in Jesus we find wholeness and peace 
We find forgiveness and rest. We find life. So maybe you hear these things and you're trembling and bewildered. You're, you, can, you can identify with the women. You feel like the breath has been knocked out of you a few times. And you're realizing, okay, okay, what do I do with this? Maybe you're a bit awestruck. I, I hope you are. I am. And I want to be more awestruck. I want to be more humbled and amazed. Maybe you knew or had heard about the ending of this book before, but you didn't know what it required and what it invited you into. It invites you into a real relationship with the living God. Eight stories in Mark. You know, we grow the most as followers of Jesus when we pour out, when we give away what we've come to know. That's how I've grown the most. When I'm put in a position to do something that stretches me, that I feel completely uncomfortable with. I'm sitting down with someone, reading the scriptures. They start asking questions. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. It's okay. Let's wrestle with it together. We don't have to be the answer man for everybody. Let's just bring them to Jesus. Eight stories in Mark. Can we, can we bring people to these stories? I know we can as a church. The heart behind this new church has always been from the beginning that we be a church of disciples who are making disciples. That, that we would be obsessed with this call that Jesus has given us. This, this invitation to be disciple makers. To be looking for opportunities and celebrating where God is at work that we would not be content with being spectators and just being participants uh, on a Sunday gathering only. Though this is important, equipping happens, encouragement happens, all kinds of things happen here, but there's so much more to church life than a Sunday gathering. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. Can we start here? Can we start here in this city? Can we start in our home? Can we start in our neighborhood? Can we, can we start asking questions of what does that even mean or look like in my life? Will you do that? Will you be stretched? You know, we often want people to believe three or four points to receive eternal life as if they've got a ticket, you know, and I got my ticket. When I die, I'm going to go to heaven. What? What? Okay. But do, you, do you know what it means to be a follower of Jesus? I'm not interested in just giving you three or four points to then take and, and kind of put in your back pocket. No, I, I want you to embrace the person of Jesus. The apostles, the early church, they weren't just, just handing out three or four points for people to embrace and believe. They were bringing people to the person of Jesus. And we want to do the same. We want to introduce people to Christ, the King, the Messiah, the one who's changed everything, the one who rules the one we're called to bow our lives to in humble submission, the one who is our joy and our treasure, our life and our all. That's what we're invited into. What's your response today? It's a surprise conclusion because I don't know. I don't know what you're, how, you, how you will respond to this. That's between you and God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel of Mark. 
Thank you for these eight stories that we've been able to just talk through and explore. Where we've been able to see you in the face of your son, Jesus. Lord, you know that it's been my desire to equip, to give the church something to run with. Lord, do it, I pray. Help us to run with this gospel. Help us to be emboldened, to be encouraged, to be strengthened in what it means to be disciples who make disciples. Lord, and if anyone is here today who is, who is wrestling, who's leaning in, who's asking questions, who maybe is in that place of being uh, of bewildered and trembling and, and awestruck, maybe for the first time, God, continue to draw them to yourself. Let them express that faith in you today. We love you so much, Lord, and thank you, Lord, for what you've brought us into. A beautiful community of people humbled by your grace and love. We want to walk in transparency, with an authenticity. We want to walk in hospitality and love. Lord, help us to do that for your glory and for the good of our city. Amen.